Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Michael Hiles here with us to speak on the advances being made in areas of biomaterials and tissue engineering. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So Dr. Hiles is the Vice President for Research and Chief Scientific Officer at Cook Biotech Incorporated, or CBI, and also holds an appointment as an adjunct professor of veterinary clinical sciences at the Purdue University School of Veterinary Medicine. We have young aspiring scientists who listen to this podcast, and I was wondering if you'd give us a brief summary of your training and how you first became interested in studying biomaterials and tissue engineering. Well, thank you. Um, So I started at Purdue in engineering, and particularly electrical engineering and computer engineering, and really never thought much about biology. But on the um, suggestion of a family member, I decided to take some biology. And the more (laughs) I took, the more I liked. And so I got more and more involved, and I ended up doing my whole master's thesis on a uh, biological uh, problem in the heart of detecting fibrillation. So it was a, an electromechanical question, but using a physiology process. And then I decided to do my PhD through the vet school because I was trying to build essentially a, a tissue engineering or biomedical engineering degree before there was a department. Now Purdue has a nice department in that, but it wasn't there before. So I've really had a fun job of putting together the pieces of academic background for tissue engineering even before it existed. But I also really feel like I was lucky enough to move into a postdoc and into a company from being at the right place at the right time. So I encourage all the young people out there to not only keep their mind open to education, but to opportunities and you never know what might present itself. I think our listeners would also be interested in hearing more background on how CBI originated. Um, I know it has an interesting story with starting out uh, research developed at Purdue University back in 1995. In about 1987 or 8, Dr. Leslie Geddes, the founder of the Bioengineering Center there, went to Dr. Badalak, a young fledgling professor there who is now at Pittsburgh. But Dr. Badalak and Dr. Geddes um, jointly, I guess, recognized the fact that when people bleed into the intestine, it doesn't clot. They often have to have it cauterized because they just bleed and bleed, a, a GI bleeder as it's called. And Dr. Geddes said that that might work for a blood vessel because we're trying to make a blood vascular graph for skeletal muscle ventricles and for other things. And almost every material we use clots and that intestine may not. So there was a series of experiments that were dismal failures and then some <laughs> that actually seemed to regrow tissue. So that was the beginning of the idea of a tissue-based scaffold, Mm -hmm. simply through uh, serendipitous experimentation, really. Mm -hmm. And then that license was first picked up by a pharmaceutical company in Indianapolis and then later dropped and Cook came along, Cook, a privately held medical device company based in Indiana, came along, had seen from afar some of the experiments that had gone on in animals and said, hey, let's invest in this technology. And they agreed to start up a core company. So Purdue recognized that this technology could have lots of uses, orthopedic uses, cardiovascular uses, urology uses, general surgery, etc. And so Purdue's tech transfer office said, let's find a partner that will set up a core company and do all those business dealings for us. And that's how Cook Biotech got started. 
and I was in the right place at the right time. I had just finished a PhD and a postdoc and was ready to go. And I, I always knew I wanted to be, or at least I always thought I wanted to be in industry. And so I was just fortunate enough to be at the beginning of a startup biotech company where a, a big partner was involved. So that was great. And along the same lines, I was wondering if you could give some advice uh, to young scientists who are aspiring to, to start their own companies from academic research that they might be working on. Are there some lessons that, that you could sort of share along that process? Well, Dr. Geddes was always fond of saying, utilize all the resources you have available to you. So sometimes you don't even realize some of the resources that you have, whether it might not be right in front of you, but it might be people that you work with. It might be people that you know at various companies. So I guess one thing is, as I said earlier, be open to opportunities, but another is think about all the resources that are available. Always try to be practical with your solutions. The more elaborate, you know, there really is a lot of truth to keep it simple, stupid, as they say, because <laughs> the more elaborate you try to make a solution, the more possibilities there are that it will break down or it will fail. I mean, one of the first things that we were using, we were harvesting uh, intestine, of all things, from pigs, and we were bringing back these large bags of smelly tissue, and one of the first things that we did was we actually bought a cheapo commercial washing machine and started using it and hand wringers and all these things, these old mechanical devices that have been around for decades, but we were using them because they made sense at the time. So just try to be creative and, and simple at the same time. Yeah. Um, I guess another thing that, that uh, comes to mind is look for mentors that put people first. Like again, I'm, I'm, Dr. Geddes was always coming around the benches of people working and saying, what can I do to help you today? Which meant one of two things. Either you're not moving fast enough or you seem to be stuck. How can I help you? It was one or the other. And so he really did care about people. And so I would recommend that you look for uh, mentors that are like that. Since CBI's products are focused on extracellular matrix, could you provide our audience some background on what extracellular matrix is and what some of its properties that are being exploited for various therapeutic applications. Well, like bones in the desert, extracellular matrix is the skeleton of just about every tissue in your body. And if you take the cells out of a tissue, it's not just nothing left. There's actually a skeleton there. It could be a very soft skeleton like from the skin or a harder skeleton like from the bones but the, the matrix is what cells live in and around. So I like to use the term that cells are nesters, and the nest that they create is the extracellular matrix. And the extracellular matrix is fairly complex. The biology and biochemistry of it is not completely well known, but we do know that it turns out that you can take an extracellular matrix without the cells, even from one species, and put it in another species, and it's not rejected. Instead, it actually is accommodated, and it's accommodated in remarkable ways. The cells grow into it, the cells repopulate it, and they turn it into self. They turn it into their own little habitat to live in. So it was a remarkable discovery that even without knowing all the components that are there, that it has the ability to stimulate tissue to grow. I like the analogy that you gave during your talk today about having a group of people settle in a field and what would they need in order to do that. They'd need a house or a city where they could navigate along roads to buildings and then populate. Mm -hmm. And I think that that analogy can help our, our listeners in sort of understanding what an ECM really means for cells. And, and so I was wondering if you could now talk a little bit more about some of the therapies that the development of extracellular matrix technologies for implantable and topical medical devices are being used um, for presently. I know that, that there's various indications such as uh, for hernia repair. If you could maybe touch on some of those applications? 
sure like one of the questioners after my talk pointed out most of them are mechanical oriented so whether it's a hernia repair to fix the body wall or whether it's a tendon repair to fix a ligament or uh, a ligament or tendon whether it's a, um, a skin repair most of the things that we're using these these materials for are, are more mechanical or physical but we also see bone construct we can take the material and grind it up into a particle and you can put it into a bone and the bone will not only repopulate it but it will remineralize it too so you do get bone regrowth. So this is quite literally being used from head to toe, I like to say that, because we do Duramater, which covers the brain, and that's a very sensitive membrane. It's a tough a tough mother, as they say, that's why it's called Duramater, it's a tough mother, but um, it's a st strong membrane, but it's on top of the brain, which is a very sensitive area, and so it has to be very clean and non-immunogenic and not a problem for, for biocompatibility, and that works very well there. And then the flip side is these chronic wounds, people that have wounds on their feet that have been there for years years sometimes and are possibly infected. Uh, if they get them cleaned up and we put a matrix on them, we can essentially jumpstart that wound back into a healing phase instead of in a, in a stalled phase and so you can get things closed. Could you talk about how CBI identifies medical needs that are suitable for ECM technology and also what therapies are on the horizon maybe two to three years and then also in the distant future maybe 10 to 15 years. So Cook Biotech is a small part of Cook Medical which has been around for 51 years now and their recipe for success has worked well for Cook Biotech as well. And the recipe for success is we get our ideas from the doctors that we work with. So even though we have many different applications of our extracellular matrix in the body, they all started with a physician who came to us and said, I have heard about your material and I saw Dr. X used it for that and now I want to try it for this. And we either say, mm, maybe not, there's not very many patients like that, or mm, we're not so sure if that's the right technique. But once we kind of get the right feel and there's the right vibe going on, then we actually partner with the doctors, either setting up a clinical trial or whatever that needs to be done. So most of our ideas come from the doctors. I would say that in the short term, sure. that I think uh, some of the things that I talked about in my talk today, which is fortified matrix, so in other words, taking a matrix and making it better somehow so that it works better for a particular application like a fistula or like a particular type of parasophageal hernia or something like that, or intra-abdominal implant. I think those are on the short-term horizon, or doing that with added factors, maybe factors from blood or factors from a cell culture. I think on the more distant horizon are probably true living constructs with cells, or at least ones that involve cells in a heavy way in the process, because you can grow lots of things in culture with cells and then take the cells out and have, their, have your own pre-ordained extracellular matrix. So like you guys have done here with the bioprinting, you might bioprint something and then use a bunch of cells to transform it in some way, and then you put implant it either with or without the cells after that. And so I think the future is going to involve cells, at least in the manufacturing process, even if it doesn't involve the cells actually being implanted. But I think there's going to be an important matrix component to all of them. Almost all the cells in your body are attachment dependent, which means except for the blood cells that are floating around in free space, most of the cells have to be attached to a surface to live. If they're not attached to a surface and they're attachment dependent, they go through a death process called anoikis. And so most of the cells that you're going to do therapy with need to be attached to something, whether it's a synthetic matrix or whether it's an extracellular matrix. And I, I think that the ECMs are going to win the day. I was wondering if you could also speculate on some of the things you raised up in your, your talk today on future therapies, such as 
tissue vaccines, and also using matrices to enhance viral transfer or, or doing mm-hmm. something with uh, gene engineering. So a couple of observations that were interesting. It turns out that extracellular matrix, at least cross-species extracellular matrix, is not immunogenic, meaning it doesn't cause a rejection reaction, but it's not silent with regard to immunology either. There is a, an immune response, and so it does modulate the immunity a little bit. And it turns out that you can capitalize on that by combining it with certain antigens, and a group out of Notre Dame discovered under Mark Succo discovered that you can modulate cancer growth and downregulate cancer growth and, and actually convince the body to attack cancer using the extracellular matrix as part of the vaccine. And there's a whole bunch of immunology there that I don't frankly understand. And then the other thing is, is that a group out of Michigan uh, discovered many years ago that if you put a free plasmid, a free gene, if you will, into solution and try to transfect the cells so that they'll pick up that gene and translate it, uh, it doesn't work very well. But if you put it in a matrix and the cells have to migrate through the matrix and happen and then run into the gene, they tend to pick it up much faster. And so you can use the matrix to actually transfect or increase your ability to get those genes into cells. So what kind of genes? It could be a gene for a new protein. It could be a gene that is part of a, a viral construct to then mount an antibody response to yeah. a to a uh, antigen or something. So a lot of possibilities. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating and, and exciting. To close, I was wondering if for our audience, and keep in mind we have both a scientific and a non-scientific audience, what would be sort of the key take-home message that, that you'd like them to, to take away from this podcast? Good question. I think one would be that regenerative medicine is here to stay and that uh, what I often say is success is 10% on the other side of 90% failure. So don't let the 90% failure discourage you because we just don't understand the biology well enough to be right every time and we may never. Um, Another take-home message is that I really believe that the idea of foreign body implants like total hips and synthetic meshes and all the plastics and metals and ceramics that are currently used, I think their days are numbered. I think eventually we'll be able to replace just about any fix or repair, just about any body part, and not leave any foreign materials behind. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.